Father, I pray that in our lives, your love of us will be evident in the fact that we love you. We respond to you. We listen to you. We love you. I pray that it's clear in our actions. I pray that it's clear in our attitudes and our words. And Lord, in the way in which we treat others, may it be evident that we love you because we love others. Bless us now as we come to your word, Lord. Convict us of sin. Call us to righteousness. I pray for those who don't know you. Call them to salvation in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as always, a magnificent privilege we have each week to open the word of God. Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew 22? We find Jesus in the middle of Holy Week leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. The second psalm says in verse 2 that, quote, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, this is exactly what's happening in Jesus' final week. In fact, you'll see this in the very first verse that I'm going to read this morning, that the Pharisees gathered together in an effort to humiliate Jesus in front of the crowds. They gathered together to come against the Lord to humiliate Him, but really what they do ultimately want is to get Him in trouble with the governing authorities and eventually get Him killed. But Jesus responds to each one of these tests with grace, with kindness, and also with brilliance. He sends each one of them who comes to Him, sends them packing, and at the same time, He simultaneously encourages those of us who are believers and how to follow Him. As we've read through Matthew 22, we see that they challenged Him there in verse 15, the question of taxes. They wanted to get Him in trouble with the religious leaders who might look not too favorably on taxation, or perhaps get Him in trouble with the Herodians who would insist on His arrest if He refused to pay taxes. They were unsuccessful. Jesus gives a brilliant answer. They disappear. And the Sadducees came along and challenged Jesus on the idea of the resurrection. These old liberals, as we learned, they thought they could easily defeat the logic of resurrection and afterlife, and they assumed they could test Jesus in such a way that He would be made a fool of in front of the crowd. And again, Jesus countered with a brilliant response and sent them away with their tail between their legs. And we start seeing this pattern. And by the way, this pattern... We know just from our study of the book of Matthew, this pattern didn't just begin in Holy Week. It started months, if not years before that. They tried to trap Jesus in his ministry. They'd been scheming all along to come to him and and get him to indict himself. All the way back in chapter 9, we find that first hint. They don't like Jesus. They don't like his popularity. They don't like his authoritative teaching. They certainly don't like his apparent divine power. By chapter 12, they want him dead It says these religious leaders began to conspire against him, quote, how to destroy him. Now, today we see the Pharisees try again, and this is their final attempt to trap him in his words or his argument. They are failures, and what they end up having to resort to is false witness, false testimony. You have to pay people, literally pay people to produce false testimony to get him arrested. And this is the last time they try to snare him on his own words. And this time they sent one of their experts among them, and he's going to pose Jesus with one of their own conundrums with the hope that Jesus would set himself against Moses. 
And we will see there yet again, not only does he utterly confound them in a few sentences, he also instructs all of those of us who would follow him. Let me read to you, to you the passage today, beginning in verse 34 of Matthew 22. I'll read down to verse 40. Follow along as I read aloud. When the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of God. I want us to begin today by trying to get into the minds and motives of the Pharisees. Why would they ask this question? How did they think this was going to go? What was their objective in doing this? Now, some of this is guesswork, I admit, but there's enough in Scripture to give us a clue as to what they were doing here and how they intended to test or trap Jesus. This is vital because it helps us understand why Jesus would answer the way in which he answered. So let's take a few minutes here on the top just to think through the strategy of the Pharisees here. The Pharisees, as you know, prided themselves in being experts of the law. By law, I mean that the set of laws laid out by Moses, beginning in Exodus and being explained and exposited further in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, lived out in Numbers. This is the national religious and legal code under which, under which the people of Israel lived in Jesus' day. And the Pharisees were glad to be the ones who knew all about the code by which everyone was supposed to live. As we noted throughout Matthew, they worked really hard in applying the law that they saw in the Mosaic law. They worked really hard in those applications, and they themselves came up with Hundreds and, in fact, thousands of subsidiary laws which they claim flowed from the commands of Scripture. Now, among the Pharisees would have been those who were considered the experts. These are the academicians, the scribes, sometimes called nomikoi, lawyers. That is the word here. And Matthew tells us this is the kind of Pharisee that came to Jesus. This was one of their experts. This is one of their academics, one of their scholars, someone who was an expert supposedly in the law of God, and he came to pose Jesus with the question. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, this is good. You, you want people to study the Word of God. You want people to study the law of God. I mean, they're studying the, the Bible. They're looking at the languages, the original, the commands. They're trying to, to, to learn them, to study them, to make application. Can't be a bad thing, can it? Well, it would be a bad thing if that's what they were actually doing. Let me give you a little taste of what they were doing. One of the things they worked really hard at is to studiously delineate 613 laws. Yes, they had 613 laws that they had uh, designated in the Old Testament, 613, 613 in the Mosaic Code. In addition to these, as I mentioned, they had all these other prerequisite laws, literally thousands of laws that would be the ways in which a good Jew would, to, would, would be in obedience to these 613 laws. And so you ended up with these 613 laws and many more, but these 613 laws were the ones that they felt like were every Jew was explicitly supposed to keep. Well, how did they come up with 613 laws? Did they just go through the Pentateuch and, and write down all the laws that they could see in there, all the commands they could see in there, and then number them in 613? No, that would be too easy. 
how did they come up with the 613? Well, they counted how many letters were in the Ten Commandments. That's how they came up with the 613. Then they took laws that they could find in the Old Testament, perhaps maybe bended a few of them, maybe added a few laws to make sure that they could come up with as many laws as there are letters in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. I know what you're thinking. That sounds like lawyers today. Exactly. Gets better or worse, I suppose. They divided those 613 laws into two groups. Laws of affirmation or affirmative laws and laws of prohibition. Thou shalt and thou shalt not, you could say. These brilliant lawyers noted that there are 365 prohibitions, which perfectly corresponds with what? The number of days in the year of a lunar calendar. That left 248 positive laws. And as everyone knows, there are 248 because this perfectly corresponds to the 248 human body parts. Makes perfect sense. Now, these are the kind of things that the lawyers and the Pharisees worked on. They were not studying the Bible. They were running off on numerology and letterism and coming up with all sorts of ridiculous things like this. This is what they were experts in, not in actually understanding the law of God. That's why Jesus says to them over and over, have you not read? Have you not read? It's as though they've not even read the Old Testament. They're looking so specifically at letters and numbers and coming up with all these rules and ridiculous things that this whole system was garbage. These are the kind of things that they would have discussed. They also discussed which of the laws were what they would call weighty laws or heavy laws and which laws were light. The heavy laws would be laws that are non-negotiable. They are binding upon all Jews, and as you can surmise, because they were binding all Jews, perhaps there would even be the death penalty if people uh, crossed one of these laws, broke one of these laws. The light laws, of course, were those who were a little bit, the laws were a little bit more negotiable. There were laws that maybe were temporary, or perhaps laws that had less circumstances if you broke them. These were the light laws. Well, I think this gets us close, at least, to what was going on in the minds and hearts of the Pharisees. Just imagine with me, if you will, they're sitting around and debating which of these laws was weighty and which of the laws are light, which ones are heavy, which ones are light. Inevitably, there would be that question, which of these laws is most heavy? Which is the heaviest? Which is the weightiest of all the laws? Which of these laws is the most vital for Jews to obey? And it would be certain death if they violated the law. And you can hear this in the Lawyer's question, teacher, again with the flattery, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, what's their purpose? Why would they ask this? Why would they involve Jesus in this debate? On the surface, it seems like just an innocuous, unassuming question, at least from our point of view, but knowing what they were doing and what they were debating and the kind of discussions they were in, what's going on? Well, I would imagine they would have at least two objectives by posing this question. One is, I think the Pharisees believed this was an unsolvable riddle. That they had sat around in circles and debated and debated and debated and, and no one could actually come up with an answer. In fact, all they really came up with was reasons why you couldn't put point to that law or this law. In those scholarly circles, they would have debated and debated and 
not come up with a solution. And so they under, understood there was no solution and perhaps, again, had an answer for anyone that you might make the most weighty of all laws. So they had an argument against anyone that you would point out to. If it's murder, then what about idol worship? If it's idol worship, then what about covetousness and so forth? So perhaps they thought they could stump him because they had all their objections to whatever law he would say. They had all their objections lined up and ready to fire. They thought they could pose this unanswerable riddle and then make him look like a fool because he couldn't answer the question that they themselves, even the smartest among them, could not answer. It was an unsolvable puzzle. And they thought they had the reason why. Their second objective is a little more nuanced, but I think it's probably their ultimate plan. I think this is their primary objective. You see, if you read the Gospels, one thing you pick up on quickly is that the Pharisees believed that Jesus was a lawbreaker. They accused Him of blasphemy. They accused Him of breaking the Sabbath. They accused Him of not going through the rituals like hand-washing. And so I think it's safe to say that the Pharisees thought that Jesus pitted himself against Moses. They assumed that Jesus was anti-Moses, anti-law, anti-Old Testament, perhaps even anti-Semitic. And so they perhaps thought that this question, as Jesus began to answer this question, he would out himself as an anti-Semitic, law-breaking, anti-Moses, anti-God, anti-Scripture teacher. This was their plan all along. Not long after Jesus first humiliated them, they, they wanted him to out himself to, to prove that he ought to be punished, perhaps even get the crowd to, to come alongside them and, and get them to, to kill him. I think this is, that's what this question is all about, making a fool of Jesus and then getting him to say something that will incite uh, a hatred and anger among the people. This guy doesn't like Jews. This guy doesn't like Moses. This guy's anti-law. This is, this is the, the code by which we live, and, and he's coming out and saying he's against it. Well, as always, Jesus does something divinely brilliant. He doesn't go to the various specific laws in Leviticus or Exodus. He doesn't even go to the top of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. You'd think that might be where he'd start. No, he goes to the one place that was even more well-known by the people and by the Pharisees in that day. He goes to the place called the Shema. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.4. We heard it earlier today. The Shema found in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You ever seen in Hasidic or Orthodox Judaism, you've seen them with little boxes that are tied to their wrist or perhaps tied to their forehead. These are called phylacteries or the Hebrew tefillin. And it was the Pharisees. Did you know that? It was the Pharisees who came up with that in the first century. It was the Pharisees who came up with this idea, and they came up with this idea from a, a literal translation of what happens, what is said right after the Shema. It says, the words that I command you, God is speaking to the people through Moses, the words that I command you, you shall bind them on your hand, they shall be frontlets on your forehead. Well, we read that, you and I read that, and we understand that as figurative language. You don't actually strap scraps of the Bible on your forehead or on your wrist. And we're not alone. 
for a couple thousand years, all Jews felt the same way. This was figurative. They didn't strap it on the wrist, and they didn't put it on their foreheads. The Pharisees, always in an effort to come up with some sort of law, they are the ones that came up with these phylacteries, and they literally take up little scrolls, little tiny scrolls written, written by rabbis, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, and they roll up those scrolls, they put it in little boxes, put it on their foreheads, and put it on the wrist. They also put it on their doorposts, because later on it says, you shall put it on your doorpost. So they have these little devices called mezuzahs. It's a little thing you can actually purchase if you're touring Israel. You buy this little mezuzah, it's a little thing, a little scroll holder, and you can pay a little extra, which like an idiot I did, for a rabbi to actually write out, it's not a printout, a rabbi actually writes out the Shema and puts it in your mezuzah, and they actually hammer it on their doorposts. Again, a literal interpretation of that, which was not warranted, not interpreted that way by Jews for 1,500 years and by Christians even today. But it's what the people did in that day. It's what the Pharisees came up with in that day. I'd like to think, it's just, it's just my imagination, I'd like to think that that lawyer, that Pharisee, actually had the teflon on his forehead and pointing to it jesus quotes the passage as if to say it's right in front of you you big dummy you've missed the whole point and jesus doesn't oppose god's law he's a perfect obedient son he's the fulfillment of the law as with so much of the bible the pharisees had the word right in front of them and instead of knowing it and understanding it and obeying it and loving God, they, they came up with this preposterous, asinine system whereby they could simultaneously judge others and pat themselves on the back. They didn't love God at all, and everyone knew it. They didn't love others. We're going to find out later on as Jesus condemns them in Matthew 23. They didn't love others at all. They, they came up with a system of, of undue burdens, burdens that no one could actually bear. They neither love God nor love others, and yet that is a summary of the law. As far as hypocr hypocrisy goes, they're double hypocrites. Jesus destroys their so-called expertise in four short sentences, and we see this over and over. Jesus turns the tables, makes them look more foolish. They're, they're trying to make Him look foolish. They're trying to indict Him on His own words, and yet He does the same thing with them. He makes them look foolish. He detracts from their authority. He detracts from their logic their authority among the people. He repudiates them in front of the crowd, embarrasses them. And he does it not out of ill will. He does it simply by being truthful, simply by being honest, simply by giving them Scripture. Now, that's what's happening here. His instruction, these sentences here, as I said earlier, these sentences here are not just to repudiate them. It's also to give us instruction. It's also to give us guidance. It wasn't just about demolishing this test. He gives all those who would follow him some instruction on the greatest commandments. So let's spend the rest of our time thinking about the words of Jesus, seeking to do the opposite of the Pharisees, and that is to understand the law, to understand the truth, and obey it. Two basic principles here. Even a child could read this and understand these two basic principles. What are those? Number one, love God. Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Perfectly, sensibly, Jesus laid out our primary 
purpose, the objective, the chief end of man is to worship and enjoy God forever, which is to say to love God for all eternity. Now, before we describe this love, what Jesus meant of this, I want to point something out in the text. Maybe you noticed it. I just want to answer this question before some of you come up to me afterwards. One question that often comes up as I read this are the differences between what Jesus says here when he quotes the Shema, what the actual Shema says in Deuteronomy 6, and then what Jesus says elsewhere when he says essentially the same thing. If you didn't notice here, Jesus says heart, soul, and mind. The actual Shema, you read it as you read it in the ESV in Deuteronomy 6, says heart, soul, and might. In Luke 10, for example, Jesus says essentially the same thing. He says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now, what's going on here? Well, the first thing you need to remember is don't forget that we're dealing with three different languages. You say, I thought the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew. That's two languages. Well, Jesus was speaking in a third language, Aramaic. This would have been a first century form of, of Hebrew. So just get this straight in your mind. Jesus is translating the Old Testament Hebrew into Aramaic, and then Matthew is translating the Aramaic into Greek. And, of course, we're translating the Greek into English. Words and meanings overlap. That doesn't mean they're mistakes. It's just the exigencies of translation. You pick the best word in the target language to represent the original, and sometimes it's not just one word that best represents that word. Sometimes it's multiple words that best represent a word. Those of you, many of you in this room speak multiple languages, and you know that this is sometimes true. You have to kind of pick the best, the closest. Perhaps you even use two different words to translate one single word. So don't be troubled about the different wording from place to place. The, the meaning is the same. Second, if you follow each of the Gospels, it becomes apparent that Jesus said this on more than one occasion. He preached this principle on multiple occasions. This statement, this idea that the greatest commandment is to love God with all that we are, it's not unique and new information. This is part of his repertoire. He's been preaching this. The disciples had heard this. Like any great teacher, he repeated, repeated truths, especially those things that were most important, and he, he repeated this on multiple occasions. Sometimes, as we see in Luke, again, like any great teacher, he uses multiple words to describe and translate. And Jesus used more than one word to convey one of those ideas. He says heart, soul, mind, might, strength. He uses all these words to describe this, and all these things are true to the original intent. And one way we know this is that the Pharisee here, the lawyer who can speak Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew, that lawyer doesn't jump all over him for a mistranslation. Everyone knows Jesus is being faithful to the text, faithful to the Shema. He perfectly translated and everyone understood this. So don't be troubled by the minor differences. The meaning is the same. We're just looking through different translations, different angles of the same original text in Deuteronomy. So let's walk through this. Jesus says, love the Lord your God, the heart, soul, and might. Of course, we can say mind and strength. Now, one thing, I think there's one thing we need to think about as we look at these. I don't think we need to stress too much over each one of these elements. It's clearly this is a command to love God with everything that you are. 
from the mind and the intellect down to your heart, the innermost being, your innermost self, and all the way out to your actions, the way you live and talk and act, it ought to be evident that you love God. And I thought about this just in preparation of this sermon. I was instantly convicted. You should be convicted as well. Because in so many ways, whether it's in my mind or my heart or in my attitudes or in my actions, so many ways I don't demonstrate a love for God. There's so much need for growth, so much need for maturity in my own heart. So much of what I do is devoid of any thought of God, much less a love of God. At the same time, I think this command comes to us in a very practical way. It helps us mature. It's so simple. It's profound. You just ask yourself, is this an expression, whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm saying, whatever I'm thinking, is this an expression of my love for God? It's that simple. What does loving God look like when you get up in the morning? What does loving God look like when you interact with your family? What does loving God look like when you're at work? What does loving God look like in your thought life, in your private life? How does the love of God control you? How does it define you? How does the love of God and your love for God dominate you? And then you can think through all the different aspects deep in your heart, in your soul, your mind, your actions. And this gives us a bit of a clue of how we define love here, doesn't it? The love of God is not just some sappy emotion. However, it includes emotion, doesn't it? Our love for God should dominate our emotions. How are you doing on that? Is your love for God impacting your emotions, your emotional life? But the love of God is more than just these emotions, not just, it's not just our feelings. Love should define how we think, how we study, how we live, our obedience, our decisions. I like to think of it this way. Obeying God with my heart is, is dedicating that essential part of me. Loving God with my heart is, is dedicating that essential reality of who I am. The, the core of who I am, my ultimate self, is all about a love for God. He loved me, and so I love Him. It's the whole foundation of who I am. I'm defined by this. It defines my reality, being a child of God, being loved by Him, and loving Him in return. That's the heart of who I am. And most of the time in the Bible, there's not a hard separation between your heart and your soul, but since it's mentioned here, I think we think of soul essentially of feelings, our emotions, our emotions controlled by my love for God. Are my feelings controlled by circumstances, hardship? Are my feelings controlled by other people? Are my feelings, my emotions controlled by what the latest edict is? What's on the television? What's on the news? Or are my emotions governed by my love for God? Then to the external, my actions, my might or my strength. This begins with my mind, my intellect. How dedicated am I to loving God with my mind? How dedicated am I to loving God with my actions? Now, first, I obey the gospel. I have faith in Jesus and 
respond to his command to repent, and then I live a life of obedience. We all know that passage, John 14, 15, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Obey me. Follow me. This is how you love me. And this is the opposite of being reductionistic, and by reductionistic, I mean reducing our faith down to something that it shouldn't be, something less than it should be. You see, from the very beginning of this religion, Judaism, the old saints, and then moving to the new Christianity, it was never about simply some emotion or simply some intellectual commitment or simply some external activities. It was all of it. It was loving God with everything. We don't reduce it down to one part of my life and I can sort of separate everything else. Some people reduce their love of God down to even just a moment where they prayed some prayer some years ago and they think, well, I did my part. I love God. I'm, I'm saved. I'm good. And yet their, their life is not a display at all of the love of God. No, this love dominates the whole person. Now you're pursuing a deeper love of God in all these aspects. And that's essentially what Jesus is after. That's essentially what God was after back speaking to the Hebrews through Moses. Love God with everything that you are, with all who you are. Love God. In the end, it's loving God in a comprehensive way. It's what God created us to do, to worship Him, to love Him. You say, well, that's impossible. I can't do this all the time in every aspect. I'm, I'm a colossal failure. You're exactly right. We all are. That's why we need the forensic righteousness of Christ to cover us. That's why we need the transformative righteousness of Christ to get in us and change us and motivate us and mature us. We do that, we repent, we follow Christ, He gives us His righteousness, and then we begin to work His will. You begin to love God like you should. You realize all the time it's God in you working and willing for His good purposes. He's working and willing to, to cause you to love Him more and more and more. And we realize the joy and the freedom and the pleasure it is to, to love God, and we praise Him because we know ultimately that's not common to man. And so we worship Him for putting that love in our hearts, that, that old Keith Green song, right? You put this love in my heart. You planted this love in me. I love you, God. I worship you, and I find out that my life is so much better when I pursue this, this comprehensive love of you. But I give you the glory because you gave it to me. Well, Jesus says in verse 38, this is the great, and this is the word, the word there is mega, and the first, it's the primary, it's the top most important commandment, love God. Dear believer, what a wonderful, simple, final truth. I love God. Let the love of God define you. Let it master you. May it control every part of who you are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, now, if you do this, besides you, who else benefits? The answer is everyone around you. In short, if you love God, you will what? You will love others. That's the second part of Jesus' instruction here. Number two, love others. If you love God, you will, by virtue of loving God, love 
others. The Apostle John made this connection clear. 1 John 4, 7 and following, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, we, Christians, should know all about a sacrificial love for undeserving humans. We ought to be experts in this. Because that's exactly what Christ did for us. We did not deserve salvation. We did not deserve His sacrifice. And yet, because of His love, because He loved us, we experience grace and mercy. And we get to share in His love, the love of God and the loving work of the Spirit. And we became, become more and more aware of the way in which God loves us Established with this personal sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God giving His only Son. That Son loved us. He gave His life. Essentially, John is saying this, what Jesus would say, anyone who says he loves God but does not love God's people is a hypocrite. And this was the problem with the Pharisees, wasn't it? I mentioned they were double hypocrites. Why? Because they proclaim to know the Word of God, but the Word calls them ultimately to love God, and from that love there should flow a love for others. And Jesus is getting ready to issue a pretty severe smackdown of the Pharisees and demonstrate for them their hypocrisy. They've created all these laws and burdens, burdens and laws that were easy for them to, carry, get them to carry out, but almost impossible for anybody else to carry out so that they could indeed judge others and pat themselves on the back. They, ultimately, Jesus says, they neither love God nor they love others. Look at the last two verses of our text. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When Jesus says second is like it, I think Jesus is talking about flowing from it. It's a, it's a result of it. It's similar in the sense that you show deference to others, you prefer others, you do things for others, you serve them. You do this, yes, because you love them, but ultimately you do it because you love God. He said on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I don't think you need a PhD in systematic theology to figure that one out. Looking through all the laws, looking through all the things that God demands of us, ultimately it's going to be about loving God and loving others. All those laws in the Old Testament, it's all about how you love God and how you love others. The rest of the Old Testament was well, a story of how people loved or failed to love God or how people loved or failed to love each other. That's the sum of it. How they love God ultimately determined how they loved others. And so Jesus summarizes it perfectly in terms of law, in terms of what God demands of us, the Old Testament people, all the way up to us today, love God, love others. Now, I have to say something before we finish. Many people sometimes try to wriggle free of 
these commands. A few years ago, I was with a, a group of pastors, and they selected me because I was the oldest pastor. I know that you find that hard to believe. I was the oldest pastor among among them, and they selected me to confront another pastor. Yes, pastors do that sometimes. They wanted me to go to this pastor and confront him about how he had treated an individual. So I called this fellow pastor up, and after the pleasantries, I told him, Brother, I and some of your fellow pastors are troubled in the way in which you treated so-and-so. Named the gentleman. I said, help me understand, you know, how is this a demonstration of a, a love for God and loving your neighbor as yourself? And his, and his first response, thankfully he changed, but his first response was, well, I wouldn't have a problem if someone said the same thing to me. I, I follow the golden rule. I wouldn't mind someone doing that to me. I said, I, I don't think that's the intent of the golden rule. The intent of the golden rule is what we find in the great commandments. And that is to love them. You remember, the apostle Paul could eat meat offered to idols, but he wouldn't eat meat when he was around those whom it offended. That's not just trying to reduce this down to a loophole or some way in which you can sort of get yourself off the hook. It's ultimately, it's a question of love. Is this a way in which you love people? Saying those things, speaking in that way, using that tone of voice, having that attitude, responding to what they do in certain ways. Is this loving them and loving God? My point is, don't be a Pharisee. Don't try to find loopholes. Don't try to find ways you can get off on a technicality. The ultimate objective is love. And I would add this, your first responsibility is to love your spiritual family, make that commitment, become a part of a, of a body. We see them doing this early in Christianity, committing to one another, covenanting with one another to disciple, to love one another, to care for one another. Second responsibility is love everyone. Of course, that begins with your physical family, those who don't know Christ, but also those who do know Christ. Obviously, you love them as a part of the body of Christ. And then you begin to spread this love to others, even those who perhaps are your enemies at work or elsewhere. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for them. Do kind things for them. Even if they treat you wrongly. Now, that's not to say continue in a situation of abuse, put yourself in line to be abused. Sometimes there must be separation. We see that in those asterisks given, but you can continue to love that person. You can continue to pray for them. You know, Paul talking about the separation when they cast out the erring church member, he ultimately points to the fact that this is ultimately an act of love. This is to help him deal with God directly and deal with his sin. Ultimately, it's all an act of love. Well, Jesus' instruction is so simple for us, and it was so, as I just read this and studied it and all the ins and outs, I realized it's so simple. I just need to analyze my life, my words, my actions, my heart, my mind, my intellect, do I love God, and do I love others? Well, let's pray God inspires us to love Him and to love others more than ever before. For some of you, of course, that means to, for the very first time, love God by coming to true faith in Christ, believing in Him and repenting of your sin. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would grant us obedience, grant us faith, 
Give us the desire. Lord, I pray that as we read this and studied it today, Lord, you would have stirred up desires in our hearts to love one another, to love God, to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, strength, with our might. Lord, may we not be like the hypocrites who constantly accosted Jesus and Jesus turned right around and reprimanded them. Lord, may we be true. And so we need your help. We need your strength. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move in us and compel us and change our wills and our motives and desires so that we would glorify you. Lord, we want to simply love you and we want to love others. Help us do this. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Stand with me, if you will. Now may we go with the desire and the enabling of the Holy Spirit to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our minds. And may we love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen.